Hi, and welcome to Diaries of Social Data Research, a podcast where we take a deeper look into the research diaries of interdisciplinary collaborations. We're your hosts, Lucy Lee and Katie Keith. It is my pleasure to introduce today's two distinguished guests. Um, first, we have Brandon Stewart, who's an assistant professor of sociology at Princeton University. He completed his PhD in government at Harvard in 2015 and has worked extensively on text as data methods. He's well known for his 2013 paper that introduces the field as well as his work on structural topic models. Welcome, Brandon. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Our second guest is Brendan O'Connor, who is an associate professor in the College of Information and Computer Sciences at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He received a PhD in machine learning from Carnegie Mellon University in 2014 and an MS and BS in symbolic systems from Stanford in 2006. His research focuses on text analysis methods to answer social science questions. Also, Brendan has been my PhD advisor for the past five years. Welcome, Brendan. Hello, thanks. Uh, really excited to be here. Yeah, great. Um, so today we'll be discussing a paper published at ACL in 2013. The paper is titled Learning to Extract International Relations from Political Context, and it presents a probabilistic model for extracting events between countries and international organizations from news articles. This unsupervised model incorporates contextual information about international politics and NLP methods such as dependency parsing and topic modeling. In a case study, they examine Israeli-Palestinian relations, showing that spikes in detected event frames coincided with actual historical events. Great. So I think my first question is, um, how did you two meet? And from there, how did you decide to work on a paper together? So I had known about, Brendan had this great blog um, that I think, I think the demands of being a professor has possibly killed off, but it was a great blog there for a while. And so uh, I had been a, a reader of that. And I think the first contact we had was uh, he had written a nice piece about the, the um, working paper that became the 2013 Texas data paper that I wrote with Justin Grimmer, in which he was like, hey, some people are making the same critiques I've been feeling. This is, you know, this is really exciting. And so I wrote him a little note and I was like, hey, I like your blog and I, I like these papers that you've written and thanks for saying nice things. And he was like, cool. And so I think that was the beginning. Um, but we, we didn't really get to talk much until about a year later at the Texas Data Conference at Harvard, um, which is a, a sort of a great, this was like one of the first uh, versions of that conference. And it's really been an amazing interdisciplinary sort of meeting place for people um, connecting both social scientists and computer scientists. Yeah, great. I was looking through our emails. I found October 2012 emails between us. I think it was right after Texas Data. Yeah, yeah the time it was, was at Harvard. I remember that, yeah. Yeah, it was it was it was uh, October sixth of that year was Texas data, and we we like uh, I, I I too went back and was like, okay, when did this happen? Because this was a long time ago. Um, but yeah, um, and so we we started. Um, it was like at that conference we had conversations about what became this paper, and started exchanging a flurry of memos, uh, basically through the month of October. 
Yeah. And so I was a, I think a fourth year PhD student. And so I think that's a good time when you have a lot of time to focus on a research topic or like review all the sub literatures that are related to a topic. And it's like very hard to do now. <laughs> like thinking back on it, another thing I made this project work is like, I really felt like I had a lot of time that I could devote to it. And Brandon, I don't know if you felt similarly, but you respond to my emails very fast, so. One of the things that blows my mind looking back at the uh, email correspondence is the length of the memos we were sending to each other and the speed at which they those emails were going back and forth. So like you had sent a, a, a sort of memo that, I don't know, it's 15 pages or something. And it was like a couple days later and I sent you back like a 30 page single space memo. And I was just like, what? Like, but you know, that's, that's the magic of, yeah, late stage grad school. Not teaching anyone. You're not doing departmental service. It's kind of, kind of amazing, actually. Um, no classes. I don't know if you're still taking classes then, Brandon. I, I definitely was not. I might've been yeah. taking a random stats class, finishing up a stats master's, but I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, kind of building from that, we're now in the age of Zoom where people just hop on a video call and chat. Do you think something is lost that people are are talking over Zoom versus like actually putting their thoughts into writing, especially as you're saying you you pass these long sort of writing memos back and forth? Yeah, I mean, I like writing. Um, I was doing this throughout grad school, like writing lots of emails. Um, in grad school, there was no Slack and basically no good chat platforms where you could write moderately long things like Slack. Like we had these like, like, like Google chat or something is just not as good for that. I think they actually forced more kind of longer, moderate long, like several paragraph emails to discuss current results or other ideas and things like that. And that was better in some ways, but I mean, it's also how it's trained to work. So I don't know, I mean, it's specific to me. So what, did this paper take about a year to complete from like when you started sending or no? Okay, tell me more. Yeah, it was, it, much, it was much shorter than that. So, so it, it kind of depends, I mean, as always, like where you start the process. So when we started working together in October, Brendan had already written um, a sort of memo on frame analysis that uh, had a lot of the sort of building blocks. And I don't know, I mean, Brandon, maybe yeah, you can yeah, jump yeah. in with when you started writing that. Yeah, so that was my, yeah, that was my master's thesis basically. Oh. So at CMU, it was called the Data Analysis Project. It's more or less like at UMass, something called a synthesis project. It's about a master's degree, second to third year grad student project. And so I did that and I was trying to make it into an NLP paper but it was actually very difficult. I couldn't figure out what to do. It was kind of too similar to other pieces of work. So this is the general problem of unsupervised induction of frames or semantic event categories. So you want to have arguments on them, you have the general categories and what can the actors do within them, but you want to do you know, some sort of like discrete valued related clustering thing. And so it was actually kind of a crowded space when I was already working on it. Um, and I don't know what I did in that project was that interesting, it was very general, um, but then, I, I basically thought we had to make this more domain specific. And one domain I'd always been interested in is this problem of international relations event extraction. And I think maybe it's when I was able to talk to Brandon, I got the idea like, oh, I could use this model here, or I don't know how exactly I got started. Do you remember Brandon? Yeah, I mean, I think, so So I, I'll, just, I'll just circle back to answer very quickly. So this, these conversations then were happening in October and we submitted the first 
drafted the paper in February. So, uh, and then it was like, we would have had the camera ready in that May. So it was, you know, all five months. Yeah. Yeah. Five months or so, but, but yeah, I, I mean, I think, um, so I had been very interested in this problem in events data for quite a while at that point. And my guess is that we just, I don't know, we're talking about things we were interested in and had this overlap, but it's so, you know, for context, like, so events data is this literature that had existed in international relations from like the sixties that was based on the idea of like coding events of the form, someone does something to somebody else. So, um, you know, the US government criticizes China on about whatever, right? And so you want to sort of pick out something that sounds like U.S. criticize China, right? And so it's a subject, an event, and a target. And this had been done first manually, uh, and then later through the work of a scholar named Phil Schrote, had, had been sort of automated starting in the late 80s using like kind of NLP heuristics of that point in time. And the thing was, it relied very heavily on these extensively, incredibly long dictionaries of patterns that are all the different ways that you could say that somebody criticized something else. And it was covering hundreds of kinds of different events. And so these were very complex um, dictionaries and they took you know thousands and thousands of person hours to put together. And so there was this problem where these these event dictionaries had been developed in the context of the Cold War. And so they were a certain kind of state-to-state interaction. And they had been extended somewhat in 2001 uh, to capture some, some regional dynamics, but it was still the case that it was anchored in a different era of time. And so um, I, I was very interested in, like, could we automate this process somewhat such that we could sort of learn what the events were. And that turned out to be very closely related to this frame analysis problem that, that, that Brendan had been working for, but I think importantly, somewhat narrower and thus a little bit more tractable. And I think the story of this project, like at least most projects that I've worked on is this kind of like ballooning and focusing scope, right? Where you, you know, you sort of try much more expansive things and then much narrower things in trying to find the right place. Yeah, and for me, I was just highly motivated to work on it because it was also a an area, a problem area I had been interested in a long time. In fact, I think it was actually one of the motivating reasons I wanted to go to grad school. But when I started grad school, I didn't actually work on it until I guess what, my fourth year or something. No, because I literally remember like being an undergrad and sitting in like the this computer lab that's now like closed down where they had these like crappy old Unix computers. And they had, I was like, oh, I, I found out I was downloaded newspaper articles. And I tried to like make a classifier to predict poll, like public opinion poll movement based on them. I've had <laughs> no new ideas in my career since undergrad. Um, but I also, <laughs> but while doing that, I remember this only because I remember like the crappy Unix computers. It was very hard to use. I remember it very well. Um, but I also remember reading web pages from the Kansas Event Data Systems Project, well, Kansas Event Data Software Project. But it was it was basically yeah. Phil Schroth's system, uh, the, the system that Brandon's talking about. I just remember this web page talking about like we could like forecast political events just like people forecast the weather. I was like, I want to do that. Like these computers predict those sorts of things. And so I don't know. It, it was a big, a big motivation for me, but. I did not know it deeply at a scholarly level. 
And so when I was able to talk to Brandon, it was like very exciting. I was able to like learn about all the stuff and figure out where current and new techniques in NLP might actually be useful for part of this. And so that was kind of exciting for me, I think. And the fact that it had this broad basis in multi, multiple disciplines was kind of interesting, uh, you know, international relations specifically. I'm really glad we have this shared experience of, of being in bad computer labs working on this project. Because in undergrad, I have this distinct memory of uh, 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 Phil Schroth's software only worked on Macs. And so there was this one computer lab that had this row of Macs and we had to run a bunch of data through the system. And of course, like at the time, there aren't like multi-core systems. There's not really parallel processing to speak of. This is like early mid-aughts. And, and so I had set up the software on every single computer in the computer lab. And I spent the entire night just walking a circle, computer by computer, debugging problems as they popped up and starting it fresh because it would sort of run into issues and you'd have to restart it. And uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a special magical time. And wait, but you were doing this as a, you were, you had an undergrad like RA ship or some sort of thing like that, right? Right. So that's, right. yeah, that's exactly. real involvement. Yeah. Yeah. This also gets to the question of like how these things are funded and why it's possible to have all the literature. Maybe we can come to this at the end. I don't know. But uh, yeah. No, no. I think maybe that's a great tangent of, um, you know, this, this work is really intersecting between sort of political science, international relations and the, the computational methods that that you were trying to to bridge there, right? So, what were the challenges um, between you two in, in trying to you're, you're trying to take two fields and trying to kind of mesh them together? So many. Where to start? So we were lucky that I think it was not totally original to combine these ideas. Like like Phil Schroth literally did it in like the 1980s, like 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 a like a rule based pattern extractor for events. Yeah, absolutely. And all, all very similar issues come up, like issues that you see Phil wrote, wrote papers about way back when they came up, like, oh, literally, like, oh, we have to deduplicate articles, just stuff like that. Um, it all comes up in this area. Um, one issue is data. And so um, in contrast to, I was listening to some of the, your, your, your Lauren Klein episode, episode of Lauren Klein, where they has huge project collected new data set in this you know, 19th century abolitionist newspapers. We were lucky in that for our purposes, we were able to use a pre-existing corpus that had been collected for basically for NLP research design. So the New York Times LDC corpus and the GigaWord LDC corpus, which has a bunch of news sources, including Associated Press and other newswire services. And those were kind of okay for what we wanted to do to really use these methods to do things that look more like international relations research or forecasting research, you need you need to get data sets that are targeted for what you want. Like you need this year's news if you want to predict what's going to happen next year, right? And for that, that is an even bigger and harder project. And I think you've had other podcasts also about this. Like it's just a big project and it's a lot of work to do that. And so we did not tackle that whole problem, but even the parts we tackled were hard. Um, like all these NLP papers written on GigaWord corpus, what no one does is just look at how many articles are there from each news source by year. So you make that matrix, there's a whole bunch of zeros. Just like there's like a three-year period, one of the major newswire services, they just have zero. And it's like there, were, it, like there were articles published, but just whatever the process was to, to derive this data set, it wasn't important for them to get clear, consistent time series. What we wanted to do, I mean, among other things, is we wanted to build as they extract the political dynamics over time, which these longitudinal data series are very important. And so it's, you get a lot, it's a lot more limited 
what data sources are going to support that. And this is kind of a bigger issue in NLP that lots of types of NLP of, you know, lots of the work we're looking at was comparing to work that happens in computational semantics, where if you really just care about semantics, you can just like take some arbitrary news article and like there's a ton of interesting semantic phenomena going on, right? Um, all this work on event extraction, like the, you know, the ACE data sets, for example, it's not super clear how they selected the news articles that they did this deep annotation of events, modality, things like that, but it kind of doesn't matter from the perspective of kind of pure NLP analysis. But from our perspective, we want to use NLP, but also caring about the real world dynamics, or at least the real world dynamics through the lens of the news, newspapers or journals who are reporting them. When you care about that, you actually really do care about corpus consistency. And so, I mean, Katie, you've done work on this recently. It's, it's a lot, it's a bunch of challenges, I think. And it's not clear that you get rewarded for doing this, if, at least if you want to publish in NLP venues. Like, I remember we had these reviews that were like moderately positive, but I just remember one of them that was like, and it seems like they did a lot of work, but like the rest of the review was like, eh, whatever, it's kind of boring. <laughs> it's like, I don't know if you get that much credit for that in the, at least in the NLP world, maybe things are changing, maybe there's better venues, maybe we should have published a different venue, I don't know, but okay, I, I should stop there, but. So building from that, maybe, do you want to add to that, Brandon? Otherwise I have another question. No, 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 go for it, go for it. So I, I think, Early on in my grad school experience, when I talked to you about this paper, you said that it took twice as much work as any other paper you've done. Um, yeah. So can you both elaborate on sort of why did it, why did it take so much work slash what, what were the pieces that you had to um, like really work out that, that were challenging? I think Brendan and I have very similar research sensibilities. And so I think there is a sense in which we kind of would wind each other up here, like in, in a positive way, right? Um, that, that like we, we, I think we kept kind of escalating what we were doing. But I think one of the challenges also of trying to write things for um, an applied audience is, it, I don't know, it just, it matters a lot that it works. And I mean, this is not to say that in lots of areas it doesn't matter, but but like, I think there's a tolerance for pieces of it not working. And if you're, you know, what you're doing is a, is a more like basic science type contribution. Whereas in the applied context, it's actually very little tolerance for things not working. And so um, there were just a lot of moving pieces and they all had little associated problems um, to, to be solved. Now, the, the upside is I think, one of the things, uh, Brendan, that you know, I, I admire about a lot about your work is that I think you know you're someone who cares a lot about making a thing that works, not necessarily making something novel to be novel, and uh, and I feel like the the paper is full of lots of things that I'm not sure other folks would have done because as, as Brendan was saying, they had been done before in different places, but when you pull them together, they actually like really help solve the problems we needed to solve. Yeah, I would say that um, there's a lot of things in this paper that's like the tip of an iceberg of a much bigger set of data issues or theoretical issues. So I just gave you my spiel on the data issues. The discussion I just gave, like, I don't know, 20% of it is in the paper. Like, it's just this like deep fundamental theoretical misalignment between the computer science NLP area versus the social science analysis with news corpus sub areas. And it's like, you could write a paper on that mismatch. I don't know, people are starting to now, I think, but like, it's, 
we didn't really go into it, but we had to deal with that. And that was just a kind of a small thing. So we had this whole, if you think about the whole pipeline, there's like, you have to collect the data, you have to like pre-process the articles. It turns out you have to deduplicate them. That's really important in these corpuses. So we actually built a deduplicator. That's like a one line footnote, but like, I don't know, I learned how like randomized hashing stuff works. That was the whole thing. Then there's like, you know, then there's the kind of the classic NLP pipeline, there's sense segmentation, there's dependency parsing. And there's a pre-processing method that creates the dependency tuples. And then there's the latent variable probabilistic model on top that learns the latent event categories. I think that's kind of like a topic model. Or I guess it is a topic model applied to dependency versus. Um, and then we add one at the temporal moving things on top. And so that's kind of the common filter type stuff. Um, linear dynamical systems or different terms for this in different subliteratures. And then I think Brandon and I are maybe our a major intellectual focus was this kind of probabilistic machine learning modeling, different Bayesian things to do. And this is where you can go dive into them like, oh, I think we should use MTMC. Oh, I think we should use variational inference. Let's go read 20 papers and decide what to do, right? And it's like the results for an application is like kind of minimal, right? Like if you're not writing a paper about this methodological question. Um, and there's all these other models or scaling models and response models, there's network embeddings and none of that made it into the paper. Um, we were hoping to do extensions or something, or we thought the paper would be bigger and then we had to scale it down, right? And so I think that's what this kind of scaling and scaling up and then focusing and stuff. Um, oh yeah, and then there's the data, the actual international relations problem. And that was, um, that was also a big thing, right? Um, just how do you, when you have an unsupervised model, how do you evaluate it? And how do you validate it? And like, how do you know that it's capturing what you care about or that even addresses real world or social science level questions? And um, yeah, I mean, this is stuff that I didn't know as much about in this domain, but Brandon knew about all these data sets and stuff. Um, yeah, yeah that, that's another piece of it, yeah. I, I think another thing is like, and this is often true in research projects, right? Is you don't know for sure what's gonna be important until you've implemented it. And so things that seem obvious and direct paths in the writing aren't you know, in practice. So like to give an example, early on in this paper, we were trying to learn these categories and the, the core logic of the paper is that any pair of countries does a bunch of stuff to each other, but within a tight time frame, like within a month, the types of things they're do doing towards each other are like relatively consistent. So if, you know, you see a bunch of words like um, accuse and criticize and blame, like because they're all happening at the same time, you can sort of infer that they're probably uh, coming from a similar, you know, sort of place in an international relations sense. And so that's kind of what the topic model is doing. It's just picking up on the co-occurrences of these verb patterns to say, okay, we think this is a certain type of event. And so we were finding though that there was this problem that we had this, for the time actually quite large corpus of, of news articles. But like Brendan was saying about sort of random pieces of sparsity, there were these pairs of countries for which there would just be no events or very few events that we were picking up. And so, um, so a big like part of the paper is saying, okay, well, we need to smooth this in some way. We need to borrow information. And so we decided to do this kind of temporal smoothing to say that, well, you know, the way that countries are interacting with each other, not only is it fairly consistent at like within month level, even across months, 
it's like you you generally don't turn on a dime and like randomly change how you're engaging with another country. And so, but as soon as we wanted to do that temporal part, all of a sudden, uh, you know, now we had like these complicated problems with the inference model. So, you know, the model became non-conjugate, whereas before it had been conjugate and thus much more straightforward. I think it it was this kind of interesting thing where if we had been writing the paper a year later or two or three years later, uh, a lot of the problems with that kind of non-conjugacy got solved actually um, by later pieces of work. But we were trying to kind of figuring it out on our own. And that was, you know, some of the deep dives was like looking at that work that was just starting to come out, looking at all these different inference methods and estimation techniques and saying, okay, like what it's actually going to work. But like when we were doing all that, we didn't know for sure whether or not that temporal smoothing was even going to solve the problem. Yeah, that may, that's actually a really good segue into a question that we were also thinking about is like, this paper was published in 2013. It is now 2021. So how, if, if you were to redo this paper or if you were to adapt it to, given the recent advancements, what would you do differently? This also goes to the question of what the goals are, right? So there's been a lot of work in NLP machine learning since 2013. There hasn't been a lot of focus on this unsupervised induction of discrete categories and ideally human interpretable categories. That's kind of a niche area because what's really taken off in applied machine learning for NLP is doing, let's say latent space learning. It's usually not framed as random variables, but some sort of latent learning but with that's black box, you don't need interpretability. If you want to do interpretability, that's a secondary problem, right? You can go have a research field on that, but just to have really good raw predictive performance. And the thing is we were in a setting where we don't have the supervised labels and we'd willing to accept them for evaluation, but we think for the real use case, you don't really have the final labels. You want to learn this unsupervised. And there's a lot of innovations areas adjacent to that, but I think there has been not a lot of work in NLP directly addressing it. And so it's actually kind of complicated what you could do differently. Um, one thing that does work very well is if you're a non-probabilistic latent space learning, there's really good backprop frameworks now. So like PyTorch, TensorFlow did not exist back then. Um, and it's actually very easy to iterate with lots of different versions of that. And so, um, and so I did do a few years ago work with a student at UMass where we were trying to explore different versions of modeling for this problem. We use like literally the same data set that Brandon and I the, um, extracted at kind of the, the, the word level, basically, or these verb patterns, and then use more kind of word to vec style, you know, stochastic gradient descent style models instead of fully Bayesian probabilistic reasoning. And like a lot of things worked. It was kind of interesting. Um, we didn't we didn't have enough time to push it forward for kind of as a full paper. Um, but there's some things that could be done a lot better. Um, and also what Brandon was alluding to, that there's lot, been lots of advances in kind of like Bayesian random, you know, Bayesian latent variable modeling when you're using honestly goodness random variables in your model. There's been a lot of work on that. I think outside of NLP, NLP has kind of moved away from using that. But within like machine learning or this, you know, area of probabilistic machine learning or stat ML, it's, um, there's been a lot of advances. I'm wondering if our, much of our model could just be done with Stan out of the box now, not quite because a lot of discrete variables, but you could figure out ways of doing things similar to what we did, I think with more off the shelf modeling now. 
So sort of taking a step back from that, um, can you reflect on, you both had to be hands-on and implement these tools pretty much yourself and like dig deep into the math and computation. And can you now as, as both as professors, can you reflect upon, it, it is a cultural change that these, these computational tools have been abstracted. We have better, better toolkits, but as a result, people and students and researchers don't know them as deeply. So what do you think about this shift in change, both advantages and disadvantages? I think that, um... Yeah, I, th I think you're right that there's there's a risk of something being lost for sure. But I also want to just like there's a there's a sort of like sense of like romanticizing the past that we want to be like a little careful about. And so like one thing is, you know, I think a lot of people knew how to derive, you know, um, an estimation algorithm for some Bayesian model, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they had particularly good intuitions about how that was going to translate into performance in practice. And so I think that, um, you know, that's something that, that uh, you know, some people had and, and just in the same way that some people have good intuitions about the neural network type work today, but um, I, don't, I don't know, Brendan may have other thoughts here. Well, Brendan, I was gonna say like, the fact that there's such better computational frameworks for doing and user statistical analysis, it's great for social science, right? Like users can use this stuff more with things like Stan. Maybe, maybe I'm over romanticizing some of these. No, but. no, I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, things like Stan and TensorFlow and, and that are still um, a relatively small set of, of social scientists are using that. Stan, I mean, a much mm -hmm. bigger set, um, but still, you know, people that are sort of putting together new modules, uh, models from sort of modular pieces, I think is still, relatively rare. Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I agree with you. Good, robust toolkits that can black box parts of the process uh, reliably are super valuable on the social science side. I'm curious. Yeah, I say, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I would just say one other thing from MLP perspective is that a lot of the shifts towards certain classes of models have been accompanied with a shift in tasks and problems to basically be more practical or more applied. So there's lots of things like translation work a lot better than they used to. And so within conditional on working on NLP, conditional probability of working on semantics is I think it's less than it used to be. Cause there's just like so many things that are like dialogue adjacent or translation, just so many things you can do now. Um, and the space for wanting to do something weird to the computational semantics and applying it to a social science problem that's just a smaller conditional probability now. Like I love being part of this community that is computational social science and tries to bring the NLP side and organize events at ACL adjacent conferences and things like that. I don't know if we've convinced the ACL world to care. I wish we did, <laughs> but like, sometimes you gotta feel like, well, just like these people working for giant corporations are just gonna be pushing forward the research agenda. Like maybe this is the wrong place to do this type of research. I don't know, that's, that's the pessimistic view, right? Um, but like in an era where to do NLP research, you have to have like weird theoretical interests that no one else cares about. There's more room for doing weird theoretical things. And I'm afraid that is being lost. I think irrespective of which technical things are you expert on or not. Like I'm, I'm fine if no one else needs to learn about crazy tricks with Hessians to do logistic normal inference fast, which I don't know, Brandon, I spent a lot of time on, right? But that was, that was, I mean, just on a pure fun factor, one of the best parts of that paper, if nothing else. Oh yeah, yeah, inner products, good fun, sparse inner products. Yeah, so 
Yeah, I, I, I don't know, but there's, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, so I feel like, so this paper was in 2013. It was after like David Laser had talked about computational social science and like this big, and a bunch of other co-authors. And then and then lady, later there were like more papers by Hannah Wallach about computational social science. I'm curious, like in what ways are the collaborations between computer scientists and social scientists different eight years ago versus now? I mean, I think that these these spaces were just starting to to get built. So, like I said, the Texas data space was uh, really a, a fantastic place. Um, that that the first version of that conference was in two thousand nine, um, and then there was like a little bit of a gap, and then it sort of started up more robustly again in two thousand twelve. Is my memory of the situation? Um, and so it. Um, I, you know, I, I do think that it is a little bit easier than it was before because there are these nice um, interdisciplinary spaces, but I think it's, it's always hard because um, if for no other reasons than just incentives and differences in language. So Brendan and I were lucky in that I think Brendan had read unusually far into the social science side, and I had read, uh, um, read unusually far into the computer science side for what like for, for our backgrounds. And, and so that gave us the ability to talk to each other in a kind of effective way. But even still, it was, you know, somewhat complicated because of just like sort of differences in, in training. And then beyond that, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's like when I was on the job market and things like that, like I had to like explain to people that like the ACL publication was actually like a thing that someone should care about because a lot of conferences in um, you know social science settings they're not they're not publications in the way that they are in computer science they're just kind of like non-archival things that you go do as a way of workshopping your work and so um, I think that that's always going to be a real challenge is that people don't quite know what to make of that but as more and more social scientists publish their work in those kinds of venues, I think, um, you know, the more people will start to understand and the incentives will shift and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I should say that, um, so I loved this paper. I love working on this paper. It's like one of my favorite papers from grad school. Um, and it was the uh, main project in all my job talks. And so it was kind of the centerpiece because I had all this technical stuff, interface with these things. Um, but I don't think anyone cared. <laughs> In all these computer science or information schools sorts of places I was doing job talks at. And then it's like at the very end of my, you know, like a job talk presentation, you often have kind of go in depth and one thing in the middle, at least that was the advice I got. And then you can kind of, you know, talk about other branches of stuff. And at the end, I was like, okay, let's put kind of some of the cute things we learned from Twitter, social media projects that are pretty different than the main thing I talked about. And everyone just like loved that and wants to talk about that. Right. And it's like, I don't know. It's like a lot of people were maybe less impressed with the overall contribution coming from this paper, right? And there's, there's arguments for that. Like this paper synthesized a lot of things, but did we learn something new about the Israeli-Palestinian relationship? Well, no, we confirmed that what our model learned is like what actually happened in the real world, right? But you'd need to do a follow-up work to this to like go out and learn new things. And we made some plans for that, but that was, it's a lot more difficult. Um, just, just the data piece is hard, right? And so there's, and so there's, um, there are weaknesses to an interdisciplinary thing that where it's, the, the synthesis is what's new, but if all you have is a new synthesis, are you really doing something new? And 
in some ways, yes, but in some ways, no, I guess. I don't know. So to follow up on that, what advice do you have to our listeners or other researchers who are trying to balance this? I am really excited about this esoteric thing that I think is awesome, you know, which it sounds like this paper was for both of you versus the, the practical playing the game of trying to stay in academia and get a job and get published and get citations, et cetera. How do you both think about these trade-offs? Um, I can start on one piece of this. Um, this is like the general advice that's always true, but you can debate about how applicable it is. But if you have multiple different projects at once, you spread the risk for this sort of thing. And so there are some, just a bunch of high risk things, but they don't pan out for different reasons. And some of them will pan out, will have more general contribution. I'm saying this is one that maybe from my perspective for things I wanna do, had maybe a narrower scope than I anticipated or hoped. And I think the thing is you have to be like humble enough to know that could happen to a project and have other things going on, which you know ideally other people find interesting or, or a broader contribution. Um, I don't know if that's satisfying though, because like maybe you do want to do the esoteric interdisciplinary thing. And I don't know if there's great answers to that. Um, I don't know, maybe Brandy, you have a better idea. Yeah, I don't know. I, I struggle with this question. I mean, part of me says, you know, look, life, life is short. Graduate school is 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 hard. Like you, you should do things that you're excited about. And uh, obviously there's there's a kind of, um, you know, it matters a lot the kind of environment that you're in, uh, you know, in the computer science setting, you're, you're more tethered to your advisor uh, in that like you are in some sense that person's employee. Uh, and that is not true in the social science side, everyone's more of a free agent. They're sort of funded by the university or, or, or by TAing or something. And so it, it kind of changes, you know, the, the dynamic a bit, but I, I do, I mean, I think it, it is helpful to do something that you're passionate about. I think that if you're having trouble convincing anybody that they should care, that is maybe a problem, but you also don't have to convince everybody. And so part of the trick is like finding your group of people that, um, that, you know, can build on the work that you can uh, work with and, and contribute to. And, you know, I think for us, that's part of what the text is data community provided, right, is, is a space of people that even if they were not a dominant force in either the social science side or the computer science side, it was a group of people that it was like, okay, this is a, a you know, um, a, a, a collective of people that sort of understand the general thing that we are trying to do. So what advice would you have then for grad students who are trying to find their people, especially in this interdisciplinary space, right? Uh, you know, at the beginning of our conversation, Brandon, you said you, you found Brandon through his blogs, <laughs> uh, but discovering that and actually finding somebody that is outside of your sub network that you're paying attention to seems rather challenging. So how, what advice would you give or have you seen other successful models of how people have found other people to work with and get excited about things with? Well, I, I would say um, one large part of it is just finding researchers, both junior and senior in particular departments or groups who are doing things that you think are interesting. And so from my perspective, it actually was a pretty straightforward line of quantitative social science in this area that I found even before grad school. Like I found um, 
I mean, how did I find this? I don't know. But I found like like a YouTube video of Gary King talking about like web scraping for the social sciences. And I was just like, web scraping 101, can't we use this for social science? Like, like today we'd all think this is like big data 101, very basic, right? But I guess in the middle of it was a new thing and like you have workshop talk on it. I was like, okay, well, here's a group and a department or sub department or whatever that's doing stuff in this area. And then you go find the researchers around it, right? And so, like um, the paper by uh, Brandon and Justin Grimmer that you referred to, the review overview of Texas data. I probably found it through those connections. Man, I was reading either Brandon's or Justin Grimmer's website or something. So things like that really, especially when something, when an area is small, it's a lot easier to enumerate all the people doing it. And so for me, as like a computer science grad student with no direct connections at any of these, or even before I went to grad school, I was like, oh, well, let's just go through the quantitative people at literally the Harvard government departments who are like doing NLP applied to political science. And it's like, there's like one of them. Now there's three of them. It's, it's not that hard to track, right? And there, I think that's really, and then if you're lucky and some of those people are starting like new conferences and stuff, then kind of the community is growing. Um, but I really think starting there can be quite helpful sometimes. I'll, I'll make two concrete recommendations um, that, that connect to, I think, both how Brandon and I approach things. Um, so the first is like, just read a lot. Like, I mean, grad school is a magical time for having the space to read broadly and um, and deeply. And so that is one way of like finding that group, that literature or that perspective that you click with, right? And I think kind of knowing what you want is an important first step of knowing who to talk to. Um, the, the second is that, you know, in many ways, this collaboration started because we were like, saying nice things to each other, right? Like Brendan wrote this, this paper that, or, or this blog post that was like, said a nice thing about our paper. Like I wrote him an email and said, hey, I really like your work, right? And I think this is just a thing that actually people don't do often enough where they, they do directed at like the most senior people. Uh, whereas like, you know, I don't think graduate students probably hear this as much from like people they don't know of just like, hey, Katie, like you wrote this great paper. I really like it. Like, and, you know, that can be a way of, of um, sort of, you know, starting a, a collaboration or, or making an opening. Um, and then I guess the, the third thing I'll say is that, um, you know, these kind of small conferences, I think, can be really effective. And within the context of larger conferences, workshops, right? So um, uh, because they, they just create smaller spaces. I think when you're at a conference the size of like ACL or NARIPS or something like that, it's just like there's just too many people, you know, I mean, obviously, it's a little bit easier in person when then that will obviously be a thing again where people can go meet and bump into people in the halls. But when you're talking about, you know, hundreds or a thousand some people, it's just, it's a lot. Whereas like when Brendan and I went to this conference in 2012, I, I don't know if you have any memory, Brendan, but I, I, I would I would bet it was 50 people or less. And yeah. I think things of that size are just really good because like you can end up in, you know, talking to people after a talk and saying like, hey, what are you interested in? Or like we did, you can go to the graduate student lounge and just brainstorm about a bunch of random ideas. So well, while you're doing this project, um, what were some takeaways that you learned from one another? Well, so I, I mentioned one thing already of just like, I, I think I got a real, like I was just reading into the CS literature at the time. 
And I think that I was um, a bit afflicted with the thing that was going on with the literature then, and I think somewhat now, of just being excited about novelty for novelty's sake. So it's like, yeah, we got to do this like fancy new thing because it's fancy and new. And I think one of you know one of the things that I got from Brendan that I try to think about in my own work now is just like really robust heuristics that work even if they're kind of boring and I mean that is like a huge compliment like they're just like these papers from Brendan's group that I love like um you know like so like this is like a bag of noun phrases paper that's like hey we should probably instead of just being using single words in NLP like we should probably be thinking of like groups of words and like rather than like some fancy joint probabilistic model it's just like hey here's some patterns that kind of work and here's some software that'll pull them out for you. And I, I think that kind of thing is like super valuable. So, I mean, I learned a lot of other stats stuff and computational tricks, obviously from working with Brendan as well, but I think that kind of ethos is one of the things that uh, I, I, I really picked up from him and was glad that I did. Well, thanks, that's very kind. Um, did that sort of thinking get into our paper though? Oh, I, I feel like, I mean, I, I mean, look, I think there are things that like, if we were writing it now, we would make it simpler. Right. Like I think, um, but I feel like the paper is just full of little, of little tricks that like, you know, like weren't going to win any prizes for novelty, but that just kind of work. Like, like you said, like the deduplicating news articles, right. That was a very simple algorithm that just worked pretty well. Like um, the way we did estimation in that paper, you know, I think people were starting to do all of these much fancier methods for dealing with the non-conjugacy. And, uh, and, and we did this technique, uh, you know, a metropolis step within Gibbs that was, you know, I don't know, mid nineties, early nineties is like when people yeah, started yeah, yeah. doing that. Right. But it, but it, you know, it worked. So, yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, I definitely learned a lot about kind of the the depth of literature um, for this particular like confluent cooperation with political science that I think is true in any area of the social sciences. And so just like we need to evaluate, well, Brandon knows all about the militarized interstate dispute um, data set. And like, it's complex. How do you interpret this? What does this mean? Do we think it's true? It's like partly true. How valid are these things? And there's just... um. And then just like one piece, I mean, that's another what, half page? No, maybe one page in the paper. Um, and there's just like a lot of stuff going on and trying to unravel all the threads. It gave me definitely more appreciation for this sort of thing and how in depth you have to go if you really want to do, I think, useful work in an area. Yeah, that is one thing that stands out for me in this paper is the evaluation and the extensive evaluation you tried to do, both intrinsic and extrinsic, and then this case study. Um, how many iterations did that take, or how how difficult was that piece, the actual evaluation piece in this broader computational project? Really difficult. We we tried a lot of things to make those validations. Um, you know, to figure out something that was tractable to do. And I think this has historically been a huge problem in the events data literature in particular, is it's just, um, it's hard to get a ground truth. Uh, human annotators are not very accurate at this stuff. 
when you start adding in the element that we had of like discovery, like who's to say what works well and what doesn't work well. And, and I think we just did, we did a lot of like, I mean, again, things that didn't show up in the paper, but we just did a lot of manually staring at stuff to kind of understand the kinds of things it was doing. So, you know, for example, like we talked about, um, you know, I was talking about how the core assumption that drives the paper is this notion of like consistency within time units between a pair of actors. And one of the things that we found that we never really completely resolved, but I think, you know, would, um, you know, we, we might have gotten to in future work, um, have we gone in that direction, is, you know, things like people will say, attack and retreat at the same time, because, you know, you're talking about troops literally advancing and then pulling back. And so that's a case where there's a consistency there, but actually we wouldn't really want like advancing and falling back to be um, put into the same learned event class for social science purposes. And so just like seeing things like that and trying to pick apart why they were happening um, we did we did a lot of that. And then it was like, oh, it's time to write the paper. We really need to like put some evaluations and validations that we could put in a paper as opposed to, you know, we spent a lot of time staring at it. Yeah, it's very time staring at it and finding, you know, thousands and thousands of new semantic phenomena or semantic social phenomena to get at in the next paper. It's, it's just hard. Um, but the stuff we did put in, I mean, so like I'm looking at this like figure four with a the very carefully annotated time series plots on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as evidenced by our model. I mean, this was its giant manual analysis that Brandon did. I was like, oh my God, like these letters go from A to J of like every single time spike. What real world event did this correspond to? And like, I don't know, you just like read through all of Wikipedia on Israel-Palestine. Like it's it's a lot of things. Like, yeah, I mean- and and I think that was driven really by the social science work. So that that you know, um, so Kevin Quinn and Bert Monroe and a number of co-authors had written this paper that came out in 2010. Although, in the style of uh, social social science, uh, it had been circulating in conferences since 2006. So it, it had been around for a minute. Um, but they they did plots like this as well, where they were just kind of looking at proportions of topic in speech on the. Um, in the US Congress and sort of saying, okay, like what's happening at all these different spikes. And so I think part of it was just trying to, you know, figure out what's going on there and referencing like the Wikipedia timeline and saying like, do these things um, uh, uh, seem, you know, real or not. So you both do hands-on computational projects and you're writing a lot of really long emails to each other. Um, how did you delegate some of the work on this project? And did you like pass off code and data to each other? like? Tell me a bit about that. Briefly, I don't remember all of this, but we had, I don't know, like repositories and stuff. There's a code base. There's a lot of data exchange, went through lots of drafts of code. I think we're not as organized with like version control type stuff that I would be today, but I don't know. Brandon, maybe you remember some of this. Uh, yeah, no, we definitely, we definitely weren't. We had a Dropbox. Um, my recollection is that Brendan did a lot of the coding in the actual model. Um, that that I I may have done some coding, but my guess is it was more on the validation post-processing side. And so I think that helped just from like a specialization angle. Yeah. I mean, I, I know we both worked on like how to set the things up, but 
he was just like like a much stronger coder than me and so i think just kind of you know uh, uh barreled on through that um i I'll, I'll tell also just this kind of funny story uh to the version control thing we were using github to write the final paper and doing commits very quickly because like overleaf didn't exist uh and um we kept doing this thing where I didn't quite realize that because my LaTeX editor was open, when I pulled in changes, oh it God, didn't yes. update the actual thing in the editor. And so I was consistently, I was writing a different section of the paper and I kept overwriting what Brendan was doing in like his part of the paper. I remember this version of and these editors. Yeah, yeah. I am unbelievably surprised that Brendan didn't kill me. He was so nice about it. But like it took us a few hours to figure out what was happening. And of course, you know, as these things were right, I mean, this was like the day of or the day before the conference deadline or something. And so, you know, it was just, uh, um, uh, yeah. So anyway, so yes, we were not as organized on version control and the, uh, the tools were a little bit uh, uh, rougher than they are um, today. Yeah, I would say, I think there's a lot of benefits to some specialization. Like ideally you have knowledge interchange, which I, I think I think we got uh, got out of this, but like I was just like worrying about like, I wanna run several dozen MCMC chains and is this converging right? We got these trace plots. And it's like, I don't know if I was in the right frame of mind to kind of step back and say, okay, does this correlate to the second intifada or not? And like specialization helps you do that, right? Like you really can get one person so in the weeds that it's hard to come back out. And ideally you can go both in and out of the weeds as you need to, but if you have different people doing different parts of that, that's, that works, I don't know. Oh, we had oh, a crazy data thing. Should we talk about yeah, like, the annotated data we tried to get Brandon? I feel like this is a good. I don't, I don't remember this, no. Yeah, so this is the, so there's one of the previous papers in this area by King and Lowe oh, yeah. had annotated, they annotate, they annotated 711 sentences with event classes from one of the previous ontologies. That was kind of like some of the work that we talked about in the past. And it was slightly different in some ways. And we really want to get that data because that'd be a great evaluation. And that would have been more like a kind of a standard NLP evaluation like at the sentence level, what event is happening here? And we didn't have any data like that. That was a big problem for us, right? And we tried to get stuff from like about some annotation guidelines, it was all incomplete. So we really wanted that data because there's a paper written about it and everything. But then we tried to get it, it turned out like the formatting was wrong or it didn't have the join key explicitly. If you made some assumptions about sorting two spreadsheets, you could join them together, but it wasn't right. We emailed both the authors, we're like very nice about it. I remember, I remember from, from low, we got like an animated GIF being like, oh, I'm so sorry, this is like ridiculous, ha ha ha. <laughs> it was, it was like, we, we tried really hard to reconstruct it in terms of just like, wasn't saved in the right way. I remember we know it, I like went to Gary's office. This is when I was, I was visiting Harvard for part of this. I was going to Gary's office being like, well, you work into like replicability of social science, right? Like, do, do you have this data? Can we replicate it? And to his credit, in like 20 seconds, he immediately like CD'd to the correct directory from a project he hadn't worked on for like 10 years, like went in the direction, look at all the files. He's like, oh, sorry, I think it's not quite in the right format that you need or whatever. And so ultimately I was like, well, a paper's been written on this data and we can't get it. And, but now all I feel like the empirical social sciences and computer science are much better at saving replicable data sets and things like that. But this is, this is an issue of, I think, especially earlier work doing cool empirical social science stuff 
like this previous paper, I think was 2003 or something like that. Um, the early work, just the, the data standards are just not as good as you see now. So it can actually be very difficult to directly compare things like that. And so we ended up not having it. And this is part of what Brandon might be referencing with all the different evaluation stuff. So we did totally different evaluations because we couldn't get that data. Yeah. And I think this is such a great argument for the importance of standards that force you to have replication data at the time of publication, because it's, it's so easy to like finish up the paper and think, okay, I have all the things I can pull it together if somebody asks, but then it turns out that, you know, you can, or it's hard to find or, or whatever. And so I, I think for folks, you know, folks doing this kind of work and who find those requirements to be sort of onerous or like a pain, like I, I, I get that, but yeah, super important. Does our paper pass these standards? I once tried running the code for someone, but I don't know. It's complex. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I think we, we put up code and data and everything on GitHub. Um, mm -hmm. And so in that sense, there was no requirement at that point to do any kind of replicability. But yeah, I, I agree with you that it, it, I mean, it doesn't meet the standards of today. Like, I think if we were doing this today, we'd have something, you know, on Code Ocean or, you know, I don't know, better laid out replication code or something, you know, standards keep moving. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult. Like if it's um, a big pipeline starting with multi-gigabyte input data, um, so the whole computational setup, can you rerun the entire pipeline is quite challenging, I think. And like replication works really well if you have a very short pipeline, but for something long and there's like software versions, like I don't, I don't know, I'm, I'm much worse at computer programming than I was during grad school, but <laughs> it, it seems very intimidating to me. And I should point out like the standards for like ACL world, I think are lower than these more like quantitative aware areas of the social sciences. Like there's really no replication requirements at time of submit, submission or peer review for your NLP papers. And people are getting better at posting these things later, but it's not universal. And there's lots of, you know, very good scientific work that's done on data sets that are proprietary or too large and won't fit in to conventional, like, you know, open source cloud, open source rec replication sort of settings. So it's, it's a big challenge for sure. So taking a step back, um, one of the themes for me that has come out of this conversation is this like ballooning and focusing of scope. Um, which is especially hard in this sort of applied interdisciplinary space. So can you talk about, you know, maybe some of the goals that you were hoping this project would accomplish that you didn't and why you decided to end at the place that you did end? I was looking back at the memos and that we have this memo from November. So about a month after we started, that's just titled swinging for the fences which was like the, the, the sort of like super ambitious version of what we wanted to do. Um, I, I think the biggest thing that we wanted that um, from like a technical perspective is that we had originally been hoping, so this paper is about discovering types of events between actors, but it treats the actors as fixed. And we were borrowing this uh, set of actors that came from Phil Schroet's work on, on uh, Tabari and I think, you know, we would have loved to be in a situation where we were also discovering actors, which would have just made the problem much, much harder. But I think, um, you know, also potentially really interesting. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, it was never going to be this way for the first paper, but, but sort of long term, I think we wanted a system that was 
producing high quality usable data. And I think, um, you know, what the paper turns out to be in retrospect is kind of a nice proof of concept and a sort of like, uh, a, you know, an explanation of how you could approach a certain kind of problem. But it, it's not like there was any usable data from that that we were posting for people that they could then do their completely substantive, separate international relations project with. Um, and so I think, you know, which, you know, given that we, the sort of time frame we spent on it, I think is about right. Um, you know, in terms of why we didn't go further with that, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it was a million small reasons. We got kind of close at one point um, towards the beginning of when we were both professors, but I think we just kind of, I don't know, there's just a lot going on and it was a very, it was clear it was going to be a very, very hard project and the payoff was a little bit uncertain. Yeah. And I, I think one of the real challenges on the social science side with events data in particular is that because the accuracy has never gotten exceptionally high, I think it has, it has not matured in the way that, you know, you might imagine that it would. And um, because you do have to have such incredibly high accuracy to have it be useful in high stakes contexts. Is it right to say that this style of automated event data is it's not really a predominant methodology in the relevant no, social sciences. No, definitely not. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. It's a small portion of the literature that you know some people have worked on and have used very effectively. There's a few, few like sort of more focused um, hand coding projects that do particular things, like um, you know protests or something like that. But this kind of um, you know, let's categorize all of the events between certain types of actors at a subnational or national level is, um, you know, it, it's, it's not a, it's not a super large portion of the literature. There are these, these folks like, you know, Phil who have pushed forward this area and like his students, but it's, um, yeah, it's relatively small, I would say. Yeah. I, one thing I got out of this was the, um, being, doing total unsupervised learning, I think is too ambitious in many ways. So we got into it because topic models were a big thing at the time, or maybe slightly before the, this paper. So we're doing top modeling back awards, you get kind of cool results. It's like, okay, well, people think this purely unsupervised category learning is interesting. Like this seems like a good domain to do it, right? But if you want to seriously do unsupervised learning for something that's gonna be long-term that is used by people, the stuff you learn is gonna be used by different people later down the line, that's an ontology induction problem. It's one thing to do a topic model on your own little corpus. You get some exploratory results that are interesting for you. But if you want to create a category system you're going to hand off for someone else to use, you have to do much deeper validation of everything. And in my opinion, what happens, you basically take your unsupervised outputs, you start adding more supervision. Like topic number three is a meaningful thing. Topic number seven is garbage. You really have to do that. And once you do that, you're really just designing a new ontology. I think designing ontologies is very difficult. Like we were doing work that was basically recycling an ontology is made during the Cold War, right? And it was like imperfect, but the fact that someone had already gone through the effort of making it made it much easier to work with. But like, you know, I'm not qualified to make a new ontology for all, all political co cooperation conflict events. Um, I talked to some people who were working kind of near this space. Like they had a whole, this, this group of these um, other folks, uh, political scientists had this whole workshop I think they invited you, Brandon, but you couldn't go. And then I was the backup option or something. So, but it was fascinating. Like listening to people talk about it, it was literally called like the post cameo ontology. What should it be? And no one agrees. 
because like there's a thousand of problems and like design and ontology or, like a, a system of knowledge of categories of knowledge you have to have some idea of what the applications are right and the areas in ai where this work are more like biomed or something where i think there's maybe more consensus and i think yeah. this is one of the things that's really changed on the social science side in the last like 70 years or so is that in like mid 20th century social science there are these fairly small number of very large projects like the American National Election Survey or the panel study on income dynamics that, um, you know, they're incredibly large financial investments. And so there were just lots and lots of papers written on the basis of those single data set collections. And it made measurement and data building this community exercise. And it made validating those things community exercise. Uh, one of the things that modern big data and text as data methods have done is it has allowed for more customized measurement where people are making a, a, a corpus and, and, and a measurement that is specific to their research question that's going to be used for that one paper or maybe a couple of other papers. And it changes the, the nature of what you can do, right? You can be a bit more focused. You don't have to try to be all things to all people. But the, the downside of it is that it sort of takes the, the validation and it puts it on the individual scholar. And you don't have a whole community looking at these things in quite the same way. And so we were writing this at this kind of interesting inflection point for this kind of events data where I think the space had been dominated by these sort of major data producers that were trying to, um, you know, trying to get something that would work for all possible international relations projects, which is just like, you know, an unimaginably hard scope of things to imagine like what properties you would even need that data to have. And we were trying to say, okay, is it, is it going to be possible to sort of induce ontologies for, you know, maybe like your, your own line of work or some, some specific uh, circumstance? And um, it's just a very different way of thinking about where data production is happening in the community. Wow. Yeah. So we're nearing the end of our, um, our interview session. And so I was wondering if there was like any any other things you wanted to add, like anecdotes that you want to put out there, parting words of advice, like general thoughts? Um, I think the general area is still cool. Um, I've been, I've had a hard time finding computer science area students who want to kind of work on this. And I got a, um, I mean, this is too focused or negative for closing thoughts, but I had an interesting conversation once with Michael Colorizzi about this work where he was a, he was a political scientist who's done Texas data sort of work in the past. Um, but I think maybe specialized in international relations. I, I forget. Yeah, I and, and has done work with events data as well. It's yeah, 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 exactly. Right? So he really yeah. works in this area. And he had this remark being like, well, you talk to computer scientists, they think political science is just like the study of American politics. But like, no, you can be international relations too. And that's really interesting. And you know, he thinks it's interesting. I think it's interesting. Um, but that's, that's also an obstacle for finding people on the computational side who want to dabble in social science which you can criticize this in various ways, but I, I think it's ultimately a good source of people to engage with this and maybe advance things in some ways. It does make it harder to go into particular areas. And I mean, that's always gonna happen if you're doing interdisciplinary stuff between computer science and social sciences, like social sciences are unimaginably large. And it's just like, of course, there's gonna be areas that are just maybe more niche or more specific in some way. And so that was, in some ways, this area is more narrow than a computer scientist might think immediately. 
and I, I don't know how that affects things, but I feel like it, it there's some sort of implications for how do interdisciplinary work um, focus on methods more. I don't know. I, I thought the piece of advice I would say is like to treat your applications like they matter. Um, so one thing that, you know, I think is I often see go wrong in work is, um, you know, people are so focused on the method because that's like, especially on the CS side where the, the sort of, um, you know, intellectual focus is and the incentive structure is, but that like, you know, one of the great things about doing interdisciplinary work or work in the social sciences is like, you know, you're, you're working on an application that, that really matters, but then you have to treat it with that level of gravity, right? And so I think it focuses you on, you know, making sure that you're right and like running validations that are like falsifiable and could show you that you're wrong, that, you know, it, it makes you concerned about real data analysis, not just as a thing that, um, you know, can help you get the paper published because it checks that particular section, but the actual concerns that like stakeholders would have or that it's, you know, contributing to the broader body of knowledge. Um, and I'm not sure that like, I, I just want to be clear, I'm not saying this paper is like a banner advertisement for that strategy, but I think it is, um, I think it's, it's, it's an important thing to keep in mind that I think gets lost a little bit as people are like, oh, this is like a cool thing. Let me just like apply my method to it without saying, okay, have we really learned something has, you know, this, this, uh, have we really gotten this answer right? Yeah, I think, I think that's a great answer. And I would say, I think an issue with this paper, it got too sucked into methodology compared to the final impact. I think from my perspective, there were these social science area publications in event data. So I thought, well, we're working on it. So therefore it must be important. But I think it's maybe not exactly that type of real application matters for a stakeholder that Brandon's talking about. I would say Brandon has written many other papers that address this problem much better. And you should go read all of Brandon's papers <laughs> if you're finding something to read. I, I will I will I will say that that everybody on this podcast today, you should read all of their papers because they all do awesome work. Well, on that positive note, we'll wrap up here. Thank you so much, Brendan and Brandon. We really appreciate uh, you uh, revealing these stories. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. That was fun.